Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Um, I'm very excited about my guest today, but before I introduce him, I want to say that this is the 34th episode of Supreme Myths since uh, COVID started, uh, and none of these episodes could have happened without someone named Matt Hilferty, who is behind the scenes um, and has been just unbelievably helpful to me in doing this. Uh, Matt is leaving Georgia State this week to return home to uh, the Philadelphia area. I will miss him a lot. This podcast will miss him. I think I'll be back in a few weeks after we regroup, but uh, there will be a short break while I find better tech support. But I do want to say a very special thank you to Matt, who has really worked incredibly hard to make this podcast whatever it is that this podcast is. So thank you, Matt. My guest today is Nathan Mabubi, um, who is a uh, research scholar at the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a lecturer at Penn Law School. He got his undergraduate degree from Princeton, his law degree um, from Columbia. Like me, although many years later, he worked at the Federal Programs Branch of the Civil Division of the Department of Justice, which at the end we may talk about. I'm not sure yet. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Eric, thanks so much. I'm really delighted to be here. And shout out to Matt. Welcome back to Philadelphia. <laughs> We've got lots of different things that we could use you uh, working on your tech stuff here. So give me a shout out when you get here. He's a good man. Um, I wanted to have you on for two reasons. Um, you are an expert on China, and we're going to talk and, and everything legal about China. And we're going to talk about that mostly. But that, before we get to that, you are also an administrative law expert. And you've been studying how different countries and their administrative law systems have responded to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so I just want to say at the outset, this is not a Supreme Court podcast today. It has been most of the time. Um, but I decided to branch out because I really want to learn about this. So what takeaways have you – are there any some, are there some big takeaways from this COVID-19 crisis and how different administrative law countries have, have dealt with them? Sure. And I should say, by the way, that if you want, we can eventually get back to the Supreme Court. <laughs> and in particular, the topic of the Warren Court when we're talking about China okay. in ways that I think will only infuriate you more. But I'm looking forward to eventually getting to that. Do you point. think it's but possible now, to infuriate me more about the Supreme Court? <laughs> <laughs> well, so before we get to that, yes. uh, let's talk a little bit, as you said, about uh, the different nations' responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. And just a little bit of background on this. So mm -hmm. Um, about a year ago, when things really started to become apparent uh, uh, as a crisis in many countries outside of China, uh, myself and my senior colleague here at the University of Pennsylvania, Carrie Kalanisi, uh, we initiated a series of essays in the Regulatory Review, which is the online platform of the Penn Program on Regulation, which Carrie directs, uh, which was basically looking at uh, how different countries were handling the pandemic. Um, that initially was supposed to be five or six essays. It turned into 40 essays wow. covering 22 countries. Um, and then we actually then turned it into, or at least we took a few of the pieces, expanded them, including an introduction by both of us, and published that in the Administrative Law Review. About It came out about a month ago. So this has been on my mind for a long time. Um, and I mean, I can certainly talk about the broad lessons uh, that, that Carrie and I have been thinking about and we're continuing to think about as this continues to go forward. But because I know we're going to be spending a lot of time about China, let me start off with a couple of main points about that, which is for all of us like myself who specialize in China, you know, I do Chinese law, they do Chinese politics, Chinese society, whatever. We've all been aware of the COVID-19 pandemic 
probably a month or two before most of the listeners uh, to this podcast, or you know, most of our friends and neighbors mm -hmm. here in, in the United States, we were aware of this uh, really from the beginning of January 2020 when it was clearly a big problem in Wuhan, and um, you know, part of us, part of that means that as it hit other countries and it came to the U.S., we were already thinking about some dynamics. But to me, what that particularly underscores is that the issues of Chinese governance that uh, were really brought to the forefront by the failings of the Chinese response in the early days of COVID when it first hit Wuhan province are not just you know, obscure questions uh, for someone like me to study in my little niche of the <laughs> academy. Uh, these questions, the failings of the Chinese regulatory apparatus vis-a-vis the uh, initial detection and then mitigation of the COVID-19 uh, virus, they've affected all of us. So, you know, I know that uh, sometimes something like Chinese administrative law or Chinese regulation might seem like it's very far removed from our daily lives here, but in fact, it seems to be quite relevant. Well, well, well um, that, so that's let's a talk very about long that. background. I know I didn't quite answer your no, no, question, no, no, but no, I'll that, give you a chance that, to... Let's dive right into that, because I am very curious, and I've been reading so much about this that comes from people, I'm not sure they know what they're talking about. What were some of the failings that led China to, I guess, fail to, to, to handle this as well as it could have, thereby increasing the spread to other countries? I'm just putting words in your mouth. I have no idea sure. if any of that is true. Well, there's there's a couple of different ways of uh, of sort of slicing that, and I'm going to give you what I think is probably the most um, you know this is not the most inflammatory account. This is okay. what I think most scholars, both in the U.S. and China, would agree, which is that first, uh, China did have a pretty good apparatus, a regulatory apparatus that had been set up in the aftermath of the SARS crisis mm -hmm. back in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, they had actually developed a CDC, which was modeled on the U.S. CDC. And they had developed a reporting system for precisely this kind of eventuality, um, again, all because they'd had this prior experience of the SARS pandemic in 2003 or the SARS crisis in China and the governance failures that that had, uh, had brought to light. And so the puzzle is they had all of this in place. Why didn't it work? Why did it take so long for the local health authorities and then the local governmental authorities in Wuhan to adequately take note of this, to report it up to the system, and um, to get a response that would have been much more strong much earlier than it actually was, and maybe at some level would have been faster than, um, you know, not only faster than it happened, but would have actually helped to curtail the pandemic from getting as far as it did. How big a city is Wuhan? That's a good question. It's, it's, <laughs> that's a good question. It's a big city. Um, I think it's sometimes, uh, likened to something like Chicago. Wow. Okay. Um, so it's a big city. Uh, I wish I had it, you know, right at my fingertip. Um, but it's, it's sort of in the heartland of, um, you know, it's, it's down uh, on the on the river, there's a lot of, you know, traffic that comes in through the river, there's, uh, you know, some industry around it. So it's like a big, you know, industrial city in the center of China. So here's my first of what's going to be a long list of dumb and uneducated questions. Um, so, things. you know, if, if there was a crisis in Chicago, like a real serious yeah. health crisis in Chicago, in America, we would hope that the, the, the county, state, city, and federal authorities would cooperate to figure out, you know, what's going on. And obviously a serious, you know, a serious crisis would, would prompt probably some federal interference interventions. 
I have no idea if that's how China works. So I'm asking you the question. Right. So this is what happened. This is the TikTok of what happened, which people are critical of. And then I want to add a comparative point at the end of that. So yeah. the TikTok is we know that the local health authorities and even the local government were aware that something was off as as early as mid-December. Wow. And we know that because they sent samples to labs to find out what what was going on. Um, we also know that they didn't report it through the system that had been set up in the aftermath of the SARS crisis. They didn't report it. And, you know, so one of the governance failures is there. Why did they report it? And so the, you know, the standard answer is because if you are a local official, it's better for your safety in terms of your own position to solve problems without getting the center involved. And so they didn't want to bring heat on themselves. So they were like, let's see if we can figure this out without necessarily triggering the center. Now, because there was enough chatter at the local level, eventually some people at the center sort of figured out that something I'm was sorry, going no, no, on. The, by the center, you mean the, 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 the national the government? The Beijing authorities, yeah. the head of the Chinese uh, Center for Disease Control. Okay. Um, so in, in sort of China politics lingo, we often talk like center and periphery because it is a unitary political uh, system, right. uh, not a federal system. Right. Um, although that's we can also complicate that if we want. Anyway, so what, what eventually happens is that the head of the Chinese CDC, he sort of sees enough, um, even in just like social media posts, that he goes in and he triggers the reporting system. And after that, within a week or two, the central authorities send an investigation team to Wuhan to look more into what was going on. So there's already the initial failure of the delay in triggering that center inspection process. The second governance failure is that once that inspection team came down, the local authorities made it very hard for them to figure out what was going on. They restricted their access to the hospital. They restricted their access can to they the do that? To people. Yeah, they can do that. And partly why they were doing that was because they had a big political meeting that was around the same time, and they didn't want to sort of, you know, rock the boat around the same time of the political meeting. So it was only after, you know, the next 10 days, two weeks or so of kind of like this dance and like people like, okay, people are starting to get reports that something's going on, but we don't really know what's going on, that finally there gets to be the message that is clearly conveyed to Xi Jinping, the president of China, and to his top leadership group, that this is a major problem, that we know there's human to human transmission. We have to, you know, as a Chinese governance apparatus, we have to get involved in a very robust way. And from that point on, so the date for that is about January 20th. So it's roughly a month where it's kind of this sort of messy situation. And then from January 20th on, once you really get the central authorities, the top leadership, uh, you know, invested in, okay, this is a real problem, we have to deal with it, that you have a complete change and a much more aggressive response from there on. Wuhan is locked down and then all the other things that we can talk about. And just before um, we go to those things, the, the, the comparative point that I just want to inject here is that there's a lot that people like me and my Chinese colleagues, when we look at that story that we can be critical of, the question I sometimes ask myself is, do I know for a certainty that if this had first been found in Chicago, the story would be that much different? Maybe. Maybe but not. there are at least a few people have speculated that, you know, a month, maybe it'd be a little shorter, but given all the failings of the U.S. response vis-a-vis -vis this, this pandemic, yeah. it's not crazy to imagine that maybe similar dynamics would have been in play, although maybe articulated differently because they're different political systems. Well, 
I, I, I have, okay, I have two follow-ups to all that. One is relevant and one is not, but I really want to talk about the one that's not relevant, but I'll do that in a second. The relevant question is, I mean, I, it seems to me that President Trump's and the Republican Party's handling of a scientific question, and I'm, being, I'm not pretending to be bipartisan here or anything, I mean, their handling of it was completely and totally non-scientific in a way that I, I find hard to believe China's could have been worse. I mean... Well, again, you know, the, that initial month, I think, is you can be extremely critical of. Um, the, the thing about the Chinese case that's confusing is that we have to both assess that first month right. and the governance failures there, the, you know, the, the not triggering the reporting system. And then even once the inspection teams were there, you know, limiting the way that they were learning stuff, you, you got to have that set of points. But then... There's another set of points that go with the much more robust approach that they take from January 20th, 2020 onwards, right. which many people would say, you know, yes, it has been effective in sort of mitigating the effects of the virus within China, but perhaps has been much too strong um, in ways that reveal other problems with the Chinese uh, system, uh, regulatory system, and that we could be critical of, um, even though it does at least look better at a given moment in time, vis-a-vis -vis the American response to the pandemic. So you said, I want to, this is going to change subjects for a minute, and then we'll come back to this. But you mentioned social media. Um, yeah. I, I'm just, again, I'm going to say it again. I am completely ignorant about everything that happens in China. Do they have a kind of freedom of speech social media there where if, if somebody in Wuhan father died or something from the virus and was mad about it and thought the government could have done better, can they actually yeah. go on social media and complain? So that's a great question. And in fact, um, so there is a, a Chinese Twitter. It's called Weibo. <laughs> um, and then there's also uh, there's something called WeChat, which many Americans actually use as well, which is sort of a, a more uh, micro level social media. Uh, the networks are, are smaller. But, you know, the same way that Twitter, you can have many followers. Weibo is a Chinese Twitter that you can have many followers. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who do really interesting work on social media dynamics in China. And, you know, the, the rough sort of summary is that, you know, yes, there's social media, but there's a lot of censorship as well, which kind of comes up and down at various points, depending on what's going on. And with this particular uh, question of the response to the pandemic, in that initial period where um, you know, so about, I would say, early to mid-January, even through February, a little bit, 2020, um, there was such a recognition of the failings of the Wuhan authorities mm -hmm. that there was this enormous outpouring of criticism on Chinese social media, and including from a number of people who were in Wuhan, who were talking about the things that they were seeing with their own eyes, you know, and uh, reporting, you know, really vivid details. And one of the stories that goes with the Chinese response to the pandemic has been that from about February 2020 onward, the Chinese authorities have tried to crack down on that narrative. So they have wanted to really um, massage the narrative of how good China's response was from January 20, 2020 onwards. Um, so they have made it very difficult for people to continue speaking in the way that they were speaking about it on Chinese social media before, you know, end of January 2020. When you say and make it, it difficult. They've also prosecuted, the other big thing is that they've prosecuted some of the citizen journalists who were, you know, not only on the ground, but posting videos on their social media of what they were seeing 
when the virus was really hitting Wuhan hard and even when they were under lockdown and, and things like that. Prosecuting for what? It's hard to, it's hard to uh, explain, I, I think, to, a, to a, an American audience, but, you know, really, essentially, um, you know, trumped up charges, right? So like uh, making disturbances, um, things like that, that I think any U.S. criminal law person who looked at those charges would be horrified at how vague they are and how much they capture and how clearly they're a tool for the Chinese government to prosecute whoever they just you know want to kind of silence. Um, but those charges, those particular charges technically exist. And that's what the basis of the prosecutions are. And OK, so I'm, we're going to flip back, flip back and forth between interesting things about COVID and interesting things about China, because they both interest me. Sure. So some so so I'm just I'm so fascinated by this. So someone in Wuhan, uh, a reporter reports something that's not, you know, our government is terrible, but it's just, you know, more or less showing what's going on there. The Chinese government doesn't like it and they arrest that person and that person goes in front of a judge, I assume. Is, yeah. is the fix in from the beginning? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, basically, okay. you know, so, you know, so I've spent, you know, my career really um, uh, looking at the development of Chinese law. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about how the legal system has developed over the last 40 years and the professionalization of various aspects of it. And so, you know, there are times where I feel I have to push back on the notion that there's, you know, no law in China or you know, right. things like that. Um, but on the other side of it, uh, it's also clear that in, especially in cases that are considered sensitive, that are high priorities for the government, a lot of those things that, you know, we try to nurture those of us who support these developments in China, the developing the legal system, you know, the autonomy of the judges, the professionalization of the judges, you know, the separation of the legal system from politics, those things kind of fall by the wayside. And, you know, so in some of these prosecutions, um, uh, and one in particular, Fan Fan, uh, sort of the famous one that the various Western media have written about, um, you know, it, it does, it's very hard to look at that and say this is not uh, a, a very disturbing uh, story. And, you know, the, the other case of all of this that sort of shows the way that the government is trying to massage the narrative, there's a very famous doctor named Li Wenliang, who uh, was a doctor at the hospital. He had shared with a few people just in his private social media, his WeChat, that there was this virus they were seeing that it was a little bit unusual, that it reminded him of SARS. And just that private message got him in trouble with the authorities, and they made him sign a confession basically saying that, you know, he apologized for having created a disturbance. This is still mid-January 2020. He went on to actually die of COVID. Oh, gee. And so he became almost a martyr at the at the precise moment when the Chinese public was most upset at the Chinese government's response. He became a martyr. So when he died, there were lots of posts on Chinese social media that were sort of talking about, you know, what a sort of tragic story he was. And he tried to warn us and, you know, look at this document from the public security apparatus where they made him confess. And one of the amazing things is to see how the Chinese government, as it's changed its approach to COVID, has sort of tried to make him a hero of their narrative yeah. of look at the way we've <laughs> right. done this. And right. the whole part about, you know, the local authorities made him sign a confession, like they kind of, they don't really, um, they don't focus on that quite as much. So, so this, I have this overarching instinct that I want to say that <laughs> I don't know how to say it. And again, this is 
I, I am not being non, I'm just being myself here. I'm not trying to be neutral. So, you know, if we did this seven years ago, you and I, if we had done this five, seven years ago, 10 years ago, before Trump, if we'd done this in the pre-Trump era, I would have suggested and asked you all kinds of questions about the differences between American politics, American response to crisis, and Chinese. And I would have come into that conversation assuming, this is the question I'm getting to, I'm not asking it well. I would have come into the conversation assuming that we're going to say, well, the Chinese government is more interested in autocratic type saving their own skin than the truth of whatever health crisis is happening, and they have more autonomy to do it, and they have more ability to do it. And now I feel like I can't say that because I can't imagine the Trump administration or the Republican Party being any uh, less hostile to the truth than China is. I mean, don't wear masks. I mean, all they were saying, don't wear masks, you know, and, and, and I mean, inside. Am I crazy to think this way? I mean, I feel like our country has shifted. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said here. And I think that um, for me, you know, looking at the different Chinese response and the U.S. response has been a source of um, frustration, but also intellectual stimulation yeah. because my priors throughout my career have been I'm pro-democracy. Right. Right. I'm pro rule of law. Yeah. I'd like to think that uh, the approach that we take to regulatory problems in the U.S., which is informed by democracy and the rule of law, is not only normatively more attractive, but also actually more effective. And so, you know, it's been trying to factor in like, well, how do I factor in this this story of what's happened over the past year and a half has has been, again, frustrating, but also intellectually uh, stimulating. And, you know, you know, at a sort of one level, I sort of have started to think more in terms of governance uh, more broadly. Um, but I think there is a point here to be said, uh, which I think is quite important, which is the, um, that the the crisis unfolds in stages and the different types of systems uh, respond to it in different ways at different moments. And I've come to realize that you can't reach a final determination at any given snapshot. You kind of have to let it play out. One of the things that Carrie and me in, in our um, writing for the Administrative Law Review and other things we're working on have emphasized is how a pandemic like this really illustrates the need for adaptability and regulatory nimbleness. <laughs> and one thing that is becoming clear to me now is that whatever I might say about comparing the two countries, you know, March, April, May of last year down to this point, we have seen some changes in the U.S. approach, um, including because of a presidential election in which a new administration came in and started taking some different approaches that seemed quite promising. China, meanwhile, um, not only doesn't have the same kind of uh, nimbleness, maybe generally, um, but they have a leader who in March of 2018, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, basically pushed through the National People's Congress a new constitutional amendment which abolished the term limits that had been part of the political settlement after the Cultural Revolution. Right. So, you know, there is a certain way of talking about Chinese politics over the last 40 years that even though it's not a democracy, even though, you know, it's a single party state, there have been these uh, sort of leadership transitions as the term limits hit. Um, that you don't have now because Xi Jinping has blasted through that that limitation and he's going to go serve a third term. So, you know, whatever his approach has been and whatever his government's approach has been does not seem likely to change anytime soon. Now, some, you know, well, let me let, let me get you let, let you get a word. In. Oh, no, 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 no. I just got I, 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 you know, when I talk to people about the Supreme Court, I generally, um, you know, 
I've thought a lot about those issues. I haven't thought about these issues at all, and I have all these questions. So, so one of them is, you know, if Trump had won, which he very easily could have done, then yeah. we would have had no change in policy, probably. Right. And it strikes me that you said a snapshot in time. If we can, you know, have a counter hypothetical, a counterfactual, say Trump wins, I suspect then 10 years from now, when looking at the totality of the American response versus the Chinese response, ours would have been worse. And, right. and that scares me to death. Does that scare you to death? Well, so it reminds me of in it was in the fall of 2016. So we've been December, December of 2016, right after the election. Yeah. Um, I went to Beijing with a group of administrative American administrative law professors. Uh, uh, I've something I've done over many years to sort of try to be a bridge between the Chinese and American administrative law community. So with a group of American administrative law professors, we went to Beijing and um, we had first a meeting on judicial reform. Uh, that Tom Ginsburg, uh, that me and him had helped organize. And then we did another meeting with uh, Chinese administrative law scholars. And I'll never forget, because all of the American administrative law scholars, probably, you know, to type of like the maybe many American law professors tend to be more liberal, maybe more support, maybe less. Only about 90 percent of. <laughs> right. We're quite we're quite despondent over the election results that had just happened. Yeah. And I'll never forget one of our uh, Chinese interlocutors, uh, a good friend of mine who has spent a lot of time in the U.S. himself. He had done a couple of years at the Michigan Law School. So, you know, he knows our system pretty well, pays close attention. He said, look, I get you're all, you know, I can see you're all depressed, <laughs> but your system will handle it. You have a system that can handle a shock like this. And all of us were like, maybe, <laughs> right? I'm still and not I sure. Thinking, I, I thought about that conversation all throughout the four years of the Trump presidency because, you know, that became the question. Is the system able to absorb, uh, you know, a figure in the presidency like like President Trump? We don't have an and answer to that yet. We may not have an answer yet. I think it's at least not crazy to say that if the system survived the first four years, the next four years, which we haven't seen in the other hypothetical, but if yeah. it had been another four years, it could be, you know, yeah, the, I, the pressure I, would have been greater. I, I, ten, I, I tend to agree. Um, so I want to ask you, I'm, I'm not sure I'll be able to put this in an intellectually coherent way, but China's, not, not just China. So, so I was reading a little bit about, on, on the administrative law review stuff, and I, I was interested by, by, by one question specifically. Is there a correlation between authoritarian regimes being able to handle crises like this more effectively than non-authoritarian regimes? So, so for example, there's no Texas in China. I mean, I'm assuming there's not, you know, you know if, if, a, if a population the size of Texas kind of rebelled against what the federal government was doing the way, you know, over there, they, they'd be put down, I assume. I mean, it would be terrible. So is there a correlation between democracy and handling the crisis and authoritarian regimes and handling the crisis? Yeah, you know, again, I, I come back to thinking more in terms of governance capacity, because yeah. one of the things, you know, the U.S. and China set these two poles, but there are a number of countries that did quite well in handling the pandemic, which are quite democratic countries, New Zealand, South Korea, 
uh, certainly Taiwan. But they're you know, much Taiwan smaller countries, because, right? They're much than you. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So there, there is that people will sometimes say, look, like <laughs> these are all small islands, yes. right? Taiwan, yes. New Zealand. Yes. Um, in, in our administrative law review uh, collection, one of the articles is by Richard Parker from mm. University of Connecticut, and he compares the U.S. and New Zealand response. And he actually, you know, he takes on this idea that it's just because New Zealand is small. He says, no, look, actually, like, if you look at it, they got their first case the same time, around the same time. We got our first case, which was through South Korea. You know, there was no thing about the island that prevented the virus from getting there. The virus got there, but then their response after that was, was um, you know, much better in terms of, you know, PPE and, you know, social distancing and the masks and, right. and all of that stuff. Um, but I do want to come back to one other, uh, I think, really important point here, which is, again, going back to how this is a constantly evolving situation and the response at any given moment is not going sure. to be enough for a final decision. So if you think about the Chinese, the particular Chinese approach, uh, you know, again, authoritarian, you know, but the very particular thing that China has done, the first thing was lockdowns, very severe lockdowns, huge restrictions on uh, mobility. You know, first you Wuhan and then, you know, other places they find like, you know, one case in like a market in one neighborhood in some in Beijing and then they shut down, you know, that entire area for a certain amount of time. Um, surveillance, uh, some of the surveillance is extremely high tech, you know, apps on your phone, which uh, can tell if you've been near someone who has had COVID or is have, having wow. COVID and then you get a signal on your app, which then on your phone, which basically means that you now have to be in quarantine. Wait, wait, I'm uh, sorry, I gotta stop you. Was there a billion people or whatever China's population is now? Yeah, so, you know, extremely intrusive survey. And like there are other countries, including South Korea, other democratic countries that have had some uh, app-based approach to their pandemic response, which have triggered privacy concerns. And, you know, there's, there is an ongoing question about that in those democratic countries. But in China, you know, it's an you know, it's the maximal well, version of that. So, like, if you were sitting on a train going from Shanghai to Beijing, yeah, that there would be it would be recorded if you you were near someone who had been uh, who was positive. Reported to whom? You uh, to the to the the sort of the central health authority. They keep track of a billion people. They keep track of it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of surveillance in China. Um, <laughs> And so you you would have to when you got to Beijing you would have to quarantine you would like there would be actual real life consequences to your having been in proximity to the person on the train. Um, there's also very low tech surveillance. So the old residence committees that were part of the Communist Party's surveillance apparatus in the Mao era they kind of came back to life in this period of time. And many people, especially in the big cities, live in these compounds you know that are like gated communities. And so you can have like, you know, you can kind of figure out what, what's going on with everyone and you can kind of make sure that people are staying in their apartments when they need to. Um, and then the last thing is extremely strict border controls. Yeah. So for me to go back to China right now would be impossible. Right. If I had a residence permit to live in to live in China, I could technically go back. But the process of going back would take like five weeks huh. and there'd be many, many steps to it. Um, now, you know, in theory, if they can ramp up their vaccination and if their vaccines are as, as effective as, as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that we have in the U.S., in theory, they could start to peel back some of those things. But until they do, there will quickly, I think, become a scenario where um, Chinese will look at their life, which is still restricted, even though 
in comparison to our life for the past year has been quite free and quite open. But they will notice the restrictions on movement and their surveillance that they're going through um, and compare it to what, if everything goes well in the US, could be a quite open return to normal. And then that comparison won't look quite as good as the comparison looked from a Chinese perspective a year ago. Are there things to learn from other, leaving aside the China and the United States, but now looking at other Western democracies versus other totalitarian states? Are there generalizations that can be made about their responses to this crisis? Yeah, and and just you know, I think I, I tend to use authoritarian rather than totalitarian. Okay, you know, I sure. think like North Korea, I think it was a totalitarian <laughs> state, but I tend to, you know, there's other people who would say that China, in some ways, is inching towards something more strong than authoritarian. But um, but in terms of you know looking at the the other Western countries, you know, some of the themes that you know Carrie and me emphasize in our in our piece and that yeah. you know we, we we in our discussions. Um, you know, the, the countries that have seemed to do well, one, um, they, they do have a good level of coordination between different levels of authority. Yeah. And, you know, different, even in their democracies, there's different ways in which the political power is organized. So coordination, you know, whether it's horizontal or vertical, it can mean different things in different systems. But uh, you can tell when it's, you know, at least whatever the system is, when the coordination is better or worse, when, you know, the, the instructions from the different levels are sort of in, in, in some sync with each other. Um, public messaging has tended to be, which is a related point, but slightly different. Public messaging has tended to be clear. Um, you know, there hasn't been in, in, like in, in more messaging. authoritarian regime, in more no, authoritarian in the, regime. in the democratic regimes that have done well. Okay, uh, I'm talking about what we can tell from the democratic okay. regimes okay. that have done well. Yeah, um, the messaging has been clear. Yeah, um, and people can rely on it, and and that in turn has sort of uh, given rise to a greater degree of public trust. In, in, in whatever instructions are coming from the government. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I think we, we find in the US is because the messaging of time has been inconsistent, yeah. there's a lot of like mistrust that is, that is given rise from that. And that becomes a problem in and of itself. Um, and then more broadly, I think that the regulatory nimbleness that, that we, we keep trying to emphasize is, you know, that having a ongoing capacity from regulatory authorities to assess what's going on, get good information, continue to come up with tailored, targeted responses. Um, you know, those are all things, everything that I've just said are things that democratic regimes, whether they're small or big, that have done better with the virus have tended uh, to do better on. Um, so I wanna ask this question, I think, if I can figure out a way to phrase it. Um, the vaccines that the, the Pfizer and, and all the vaccines that are in America today, my understanding is they got approved quicker than would normally be allowed under normal FDA rules and regulations. Those yeah. FDA rules and regulations, I assume, are primarily the product, not of Congress, but of executive discretion, executive lawmaking that most of our country is. So the FDA can, yeah. you know. Um, I feel like we actually have been pretty nimble when it comes to the vaccine. Is that a I fair? I think the vaccine story, it seems to be, and that's again, you know, because the vaccine story was not a story that we knew about a right. year ago. Yeah. But if you look at it now, the vaccine story in the US seems to be a huge success, both in terms of the speed of the regulatory approvals, the safety of the vaccines, the effectiveness of the vaccines. Um, you know, so that's, that I think has been a very positive story. And then what it seems as if the Biden administration has done a better job of. You know, it's hard to know whether the Trump administration would have been as good at this, but the Biden administration has been excellent at the actual vaccination right. process of rolling right. out. 
you know, so as of right now in the U.S., it seems to be that the biggest problem is vaccine hesitancy rather than, you know, lack of supply. Well, yeah. So on this variable, the U.S. has done incredibly well and not only has done better, you know, than even, you know, arguably China, but has done better. You know, the EU, um, you know, has a, a lot of, you know, problems in terms of their vaccination rollout, which they might be addressing now. Yeah. But um, I think Canada you know, too. had a part to do with the with the regulatory sort of apparatus of like approving the, the right. vaccines. Um, but then also the actual process of vaccination, the supply of vaccines, all of those were much bigger problems in Europe than they have been in the U.S. I think Canada, too, I think. Um, so so I want to ask yeah. one more COVID question and then I want to we only have like 15, 20 minutes left. I want to talk about China. Uh, sure. Do we Don't give Trump the Warren Court too? We'll bring it back to the Warren Court. Do, yeah, okay. I, you did say to everyone listening, you're going to make me even more mad about the Supreme Court, and I'm finding oh, yeah, I'm sure, finding that hard sure. to believe, but we'll find I out. I promise you. I promise. Okay. You. Um, last COVID question: uh, um, Does Trump get some credit for the? I mean, the vaccine did happen on his watch, kind. Of. I mean, it was invented or whatever. I don't know what the right word is. Is it, does he get? Should we should we be honest and give him some give his administration some credit for that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. You know, I mean, I think you know politically, probably you and me are on the same yeah. side of a lot of these questions. Yeah. But I try to sort of you know I don't you know I think where one can give credit, one should give credit, and I think there's you know against the backdrop of all the other things that one can be critical of. Yeah, I think the process of sort of pushing through the regulatory approvals, um, you know, moving. What I understand is that. Uh, it's not that they rushed the science; they they rushed the regulatory approval process. Right. So that they were they were mo- they were moving this through the system as opposed to sequentially. They were doing different steps at the same time, so that it could be faster. Right. Um, and that that's a big success. Now, of course, it's it's undermined by the fact that, like, it seems to me that uh, President Trump himself and many of his supporters they alternately want credit for the vaccine but do not want to actually get vaccinated or to encourage other people to get vaccinated. <laughs> I know, it's nuts. Very, you know, so like President Trump himself has gotten vaccinated, but has not, you know, I, I know he made one message, but he has not yeah. been as vocal in um, reaching many of his supporters who frankly are many of the people who are most hesitant about taking the vaccine about the importance of it. So it's, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to give him credit on the, the you know, and obviously he's not, he didn't come up with the vaccine. No, no, no. Right? But, we have to give credit to yeah. like the immigrants. In but, we, but we ascribe success and failure to presidents all the time when they don't deserve either one. I mean, that's just, right. Yeah. But there is, there is some credit there. There is some share of credit, okay. um, which I think we can, we can happily give, which then may be, you know, mitigated by um, the inability to more robustly encourage uh, his right. supporters to get vaccinated. All right, kind of a lightning round of dumb China questions. All right, first, I, I don't, I don't know how, to, I don't know how to phrase this. And I, I know you're going to, I know it's a, you can't answer this question in any intellectually, you know, substantial way. Now, is there a rule of law in China? I mean, is there, or, or is it just the whims of 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 the bureaucrats and then the whims of? I mean, I don't know. I really don't. So this is what I spend. All my time on this is yeah. my my professional community in the academy, the Chinese legal scholars that we we, we spend yeah. all our time on. It. Here's one way of telling the story: okay. that um, the Cultural Revolution from 19. Well, tell tell everybody what that is, because not everyone listening, unfortunately, is going to know what that it is. It is an incredibly dramatic period in Chinese history that I don't think is fully appreciated, you know, outside of China, how dramatic and chaotic it was. Yeah. Um, it's it's basically a political mobilization set in motion by Mao Zedong, um, who wanted to resist what he saw as 
greater institutionalization of political power under the CCP's rule, which also happened to encroach on his personal uh, position. Coincidence, I'm sure. So he, he wanted to kind of just mix it all up. Um, and that's what it was. It was it, it is unbelievable how chaotic those 10 years were. And after, you know, Chairman Mao dies and, you know, they can finally move out of that period and this new leadership comes to the fore, led by Deng Xiaoping, many of whom had themselves, including Deng Xiaoping, suffered incredibly during the Cultural Revolution. Um, they decided that they wanted to make sure that that kind of chaos wouldn't happen again. And so some of that translated into trying to come up with political institutionalization, but some of that gave genuine real support for building of a legal infrastructure. And so the story of 1980s and onward has been one of building a Chinese legal system, a modern Chinese legal system, um, on top of the ashes of you know, the Cultural Revolution where all the institutions up to that point had been demolished, um, with at least one large motivating factor being we do not want to have the kind of chaos and the kinds of abuses that we saw during that period. Other motivating factors include you know, wanting to you know, signal to foreign investors that we have a legal system here that looks a little bit or very much like the legal system that you have in your home country. So this is a safe place to do investment in. And part of it is thinking, look, this is good. We need to have a legal system for an increasingly modern economy that can handle you know, increasing complexity of transactions. And so you know, there is a way of telling the story of the development of Chinese legal system over the last 40 years of moving towards, if not rule of law, then at least um, somewhat recognizable uh, institutions, uh, you know, actors that uh, are creating a world that is somewhat distinct from just pure political considerations. As you're talking to me now, this day, you know, 2021, it's a more pessimistic time for those of us who study the stuff mm -hmm. than it would have been at other periods of time. Um, one of the big stories of the last decade has been, um, you know, not only the rise of Xi Jinping, but the very particular uh, approach to uh, resuscitating the party, the Communist Party, in daily life in China that, that he's taken. And that has encroached upon whatever space the legal system yeah. was, was developing. And so it's a more, it's always been a complex answer. But it's become even more complex okay. as we've seen the party take a greater role in the last few years. So if you if you were to um, write an article for an American law review, law review that was incredibly critical of some aspect of the Chinese government, whether it be the criminal justice system there or, or handling of COVID or but really, you know, the, the way you could write about Trump's handling of COVID, you know, if you wanted to. If you wrote that and then COVID's over or back to normal, it's three years from that. Can you write that article and then go to Hong, go to China? Like, will they let you in? Like, how does that work? And so this is so this is a, a question that a lot of China scholars always wonder about: is what are the lines yes. in terms of? Because you know, frankly, doing field work in China is. Inc I've spent a lot of time in China on the ground. You know, talking to lawyers and judges and professors in cities all over the country. You know what I I do not think it's possible to have a really deep sense of the Chinese legal system just reading documents sure. in my office here in Philadelphia. Sure. You've got to be on the ground. You just have to be, and and so for all of us who who think that way, 
we are conscious of like you know what are what are some of the lines and and there in fact um a couple of my friends and colleagues uh political scientists Rory Truex and Sheena Greidens have published this piece on whether or not um American scholars uh, do self-censorship when yeah. it comes to their work on China because they don't want it to yes. get in trouble um and I did a podcast with the two of them where we we talked about some of these themes and you know for me personally where it comes down to is the types of issues that I study, I study administrative litigation in China, people suing the government and administer procedure reform. Those are issues that have political resonance, but they are not the most sensitive issues in the you know Chinese legal world. Right. And so I can say things that are, and I do say things both in my writing and public remarks and including in China that are quite critical, including of the way in which the party can you know interfere in the operation of those cases? Um, so I am. I, I would not say that I don't ever measure my words under any circumstances, especially when I'm speaking in China. But I don't think that I engage in any real meaningful self censorship on the issues that I study. Now, if I was a scholar who was focused on the ethnic minority in Xinjiang Province, the yeah. Uyghurs, who are in these you know camps and um, having their entire way of life uh, be, uh, you know, Destroyed. changed or, you know, we don't have full details, but it seems quite bad and, and across a lot of different things. If that was what I focused on and I was writing extremely critically all the time about those issues, then yes, for sure, it would be, I mean, in fact, some of those scholars who have written in those ways have not only in the past had their visas to China uh, been declined. Um, that was what we knew from the, the past. But now the Chinese government is actually actively trying to sanction them and even bringing defamation litigation against them in wow. their home states. There's a couple of European scholars who just had to go through this. Yeah. The fact that I don't do that, I think, is not a function of a self-censorship on my part. It's just that's not what I study. Right. And, you know, someone could, you know, and people have, you know, people will sometimes say, well, you should be talking about that. You're <laughs> making a choice not to talk about that. I think it's defensible until that story becomes so um, massive that you can't possibly say anything about China except for that story. I, I do, Some people would argue that that may be the case. I, I don't think we're there yet, but right. it would be the analogy. And again, I don't think we're we're there yet with China, but the analogy would be someone in 1942 being like, hey, listen, I found some really interesting things in Nazi administrative law. People <laughs> would be like, that's not the main that's story, not the dude, story, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. um, I, I think I want to make the point, and then and I'm going to ask you about the Warren Court because we're running out of time. But I think I want to make the point that, I mean, obviously we have much more freedom of speech here. I'm not suggesting that. No one, but there are limits to what we can say here. They're just different kinds of limits. I mean, I have been accused by many and shut out of things by some because of my what I think are just honest views about Justice Thomas and what a destructive, horrific judge he has been and basically an agent of the Republican Party, you know, since he was put on the Supreme Court. When I get too far into that, people start turning me away and turning here in America and turning. I, we can't criticize him too much, you know, and and, and you know, Justice O'Connor in the early 80s wrote some really horrific opinions. I, I was old enough back then to see what was going on. It was hard to criticize. No one criticized Justice O'Connor into the late 80s. 
because they were afraid yeah. of criticizing the first woman Supreme Court justice and so on and so forth. It's not like we have, you know, complete ability to be as critical as we want to be about our government here either. It's just that we don't go to jail for it, but we can get punished for it in other ways, I think. Is that a fair? Sure. And I mean, right now we're living in this period of, you know, the cancel culture wars. Everyone yeah. is, you know, yeah. <laughs> the right is canceling the left, the left is canceling the right, lots of cancellations. You know, whatever we have here is qualitatively different sure. from the situation for Chinese academics. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think of there's a very famous professor at Tsinghua University named uh, Xu Zhangrun, uh, who in recent years has written extremely critical and very poetic uh, commentaries about Xi Jinping, which have been widely circulated among the Chinese elite. Really? Uh, he's uh, been basically um, lost his formal teaching job at Tsinghua University. He still kind of got, he's on the payroll in a sense, but like has lost a lot of his right. sort of real salary and is at any moment, right, right on the cusp of like another layer of, of punishment. There's another scholar who um, has written uh, on rule of law themes for many years named Ho Wei Feng at Peking University, who's a good friend of mine. Um, he has not had the same exact, he's been more careful then Xu Zhangrun a little bit in the way that he's written. And there are people like who talk to him and say, hey, listen, don't do this, don't do that, you know, just to kind of let him know where the lines are. But he's not as vocal as he used to be. He doesn't have as many opportunities to make a public presentations, right. to teach as big classes. Um, what I want to add to this is just to say, I am really beyond impressed with my Chinese academic friends in the legal academy who work within that environment and try to figure out how they can push the ball forward in terms of legal development and development towards something like a rule of law within those kinds of kinds of boundaries. Yeah. There's I think there's there's no one that I've come across as a law person in my career that is as inspirational as some of those people that I have in mind who just figure it out how to within the limits knowing that there's always going to be a line that if they get past that line, you know, they, they're going to be in a position where they can't do much. But how do they do stuff until that line? Fascinating. We don't have quite the same no. dynamic here in the yeah. States. No, no. Although, you know, in times of high stress in America, we certainly do. I mean, you know, we lose our constitutional rights very quickly here um, during times of yeah. war. All right. I, I could talk to you forever, but unfortunately, we can't go on forever. So make me mad about the Warren court as a, as a, as the way out of here. I've had so much, I feel bad doing this because I've had so much fun chatting and, you know, I don't want to upset you at the end. So whatever we want to, you know, so we've had this discussion separately, not related to China, about uh, whether or not, you know, the Warren court should be the way that we think about the Supreme Court or the possibilities of the Supreme Court. And, and you've told me very bluntly to get over it. That's not the right way. Wait, 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 wait hold on. That didn't sound, we got to put the back. What I've said is the Warren court is an aberration. It's 10 right. years out of 230 or whatever. Um, and we should not base our Supreme Court strategies, what we think about the court, based on those 12 years. That's just dumb. Right. Okay. Okay. Within a context like China, and maybe other countries too, but I'm going to specify on China, there are people within the system of the uh, court, and even, you know, more broadly, but especially within the court system, who are trying to make the Chinese court system more um, significant sure. in resolving 
disputes in society, less um, politicized, more uh, based on sort of legal reasoning mm -hmm. and you know legal values. For those people, the image of the Supreme Court, of the U.S. Supreme Court, that has been crafted around the Brown. world court is Brown. enormously um, inspirational. Yeah. Right? So there are people within the Chinese Supreme Court, and I know them, who read every Supreme Court decision, American Supreme Court decision, yeah. who have a really deep understanding of the development of uh, the, U the U.S. Supreme Court's jurisprudence and are genuinely inspired by the story of Brown and other decisions of the Warren Court from that period of time. And they- Do, oh, well, hold on, hold on, I gotta interrupt. Oh, hold on, hold on, I gotta interrupt. I must interrupt. Yeah. Do they know that the story of Brown includes the 10 years, uh, 10 years later, 10 years, a decade after Brown, the South was still 98% segregated? Like, do they understand that subtlety? So, <laughs> right, and, and so that, that's where we can, that's a harder question. Like okay. how, right, but- they should be studying the Civil Rights Act of 1964, not Brown versus Board of Education, if they want to understand why there's how how legal segregation ended in this country. Right. It's it's not so much the particular issue as the notion that a court. Yeah. And you would say, look, just a court of these, but you know, these nine unelected people who like you know whatever, blah 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 blah. Yeah. But the notion that a court yeah, I get it. could have this kind of uh, political resonance, um, that in and of itself is a source of inspiration. And so I'm not saying that, you know, people should hold on to their myths, right? Like, <laughs> but. <laughs> no, wait a second. Okay. Let's that get, okay. has been a source of genuine inspiration. You've raised a really fascinating point. Um, we're going to go five or ten minutes over and people can turn off if they're bored. So here's what I want to say about that, though. Yeah. You have to look at our Supreme Court compared to our other structures of government. And how strong do we want the Supreme Court to be compared to states, Congress, the president, and the administrative agencies? In China, we're comparing the courts to, to authoritarian regime. I, I, yeah. I totally understand why you would be smart to overshoot judicial power there and, 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 and go for broke on that point of it because you're not going to get that from the central government and all that. But th that comparison doesn't work for our country when you think about, when I think about the idea that the court has been well behind Congress on virtually every civil, other than gay marriage, on virtually every civil rights issue ever. Um, going yeah. back, so not, not talking about the states, but as far as Congress goes, the, the court is the institution that slows down progress, child labor, ending slavery in the territories, Civil Rights Act of, 17, of 1883 or whatever it was, and so on. So I just want to say, I don't, I'm not mad because if I were in China and I was an academic who was trying to, you know, toe that line between not getting arrested and saying important things, I would say, no, we need more law here. We need more judges here. Right. We need more courts here. I, I hope you agree that's not necessarily the answer for us. I mean, maybe it is, but. Right. And, and, you know, this is something I've, I've devoted a lot of time to is sort of facilitating conversations between American and Chinese legal academics where you have really interesting dialogues on these kinds of points. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that, you know, a whole nother set of themes is how because of the tensions between the two countries, that kind of academic dialogue has become much more difficult to do yeah. uh, for reasons that are specific to both countries. But these kinds of conversations, I think, are incredibly valuable.
um, because regardless of, you know, regardless of any other thing, our system is a beacon for reformist types, certainly in China um, and maybe other parts of the world as well. And um, certain things about our mythology about our system are of true and genuine inspiration. Um, and I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. No, I don't either. But of course, as you say, having, uh, you know, in at least an intellectual context, being able to, uh, um, you know, make that a more complex story. Sure. Uh, and, and I think for, you know, any American legal academics who are, are listening to this, I, I do think I want to emphasize that um, the Chinese interlocutors are a lot more sophisticated about this stuff than one might think from a starting point. I believe that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of room yeah. to kind of, you know, make the understandings even even more and, and a genuine um, desire because of how people view the prestige of the American legal system to learn more about it. So when I when, um, when I give my normal this is why the Supreme Court has been terrible speech, which I have given 100 times in my career. Yeah, don't give that in China. And I, <laughs> I, no, I won't. And I want to make this okay. point. I, and I, this is now I'm being selfish because people who know my work, I want them to understand this. When I get to Brown, when I, when I do my parade of horribles, Plessy and Dred Scott and turning the 14th Amendment into a railroad protecting device as opposed to protecting African-Americans, Lochner plus 200 and all that stuff. And then I get to Brown and I talk about how, of course, I'm glad Brown came out the way it did and it was good that it did. But it didn't do much on the ground. The, the, I, there was a response to that argument I've gotten at least three times in my career that I have no answer to, which is even if, Siegel, you're right, that Brown is vastly overrated, that in America it didn't really move the needle, that it took Kennedy's death, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson as president to get that. Internationally, the symbolism of it was unbelievably yeah. important. And you, Siegel, have no idea about that. And that's true. I don't. I take it you agree with that. I mean, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't put it in quite the same okay. sort of, you know, extreme yeah. Yeah. terms, but, yeah. but um, yes, it, it, sim, the symbolism of Brown was, I mean, I think there was one could probably also argue the symbolism of Brown within the U.S. was quite important. Um, I'm not as sure about internationally, that. Yeah. internationally, internationally, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll stay on, on the turf of internationally, <laughs> uh, you know, it had a real, and it was a, you know, it was something that was not only, um you know, a popular sort of imagination, but actual on the ground legal reformers in a lot of different systems, including in China, especially in China, yeah. took that as an inspiration for what they were trying to do in terms of making law uh, have a greater role vis-a-vis -vis politics. And what's fascinating about that is I think internationally it probably was received better than in our 12 southern states that stayed 98 percent segregated for the 10 years afterwards until Congress said you can't get our money unless you end formal legal state. Anyway. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, you, you asked me to do a clubhouse a few weeks ago, and, that, and, and I never – you got me on new technology, and I want to tell the world my family was like, you did that on your own? Like you didn't need my 13-year-old. My she was on call that night. <laughs> but you were so good I didn't need it. Anyway, it, it, it's, it's been great learning from you, and I hope when COVID is over we can get together in person and talk about this Sounds more. Great. I want to say I, one I more thing about it you. so much. I want to say one more thing yeah. about you. I was looking at your record and, and what you're doing and all the stuff you're doing. You're doing real stuff. Like, I mean, you really are. I mean, you, you know, you're having an effect in some ways in ways that most American law professors don't um, and, and, and bringing two completely different worlds together. I really respect that. 
And I think you're doing a great I, job. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Um, and I, I again, this has been such a fun conversation. I uh, hope we're going to continue doing various things in this space. And I really look forward to meeting in person sometime soon, too. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot.